Welcome to the cafeteria, where everyone gets a serve. My guest on today's episode of the cafeteria is someone who's described as the evil love child of Liza Minnelli and Jim Carrey. The London Times describes him as a new comedy star. Reuben Kay is what happens when you tell your child they can be anything they want. I recently caught up with Reuben at the 2022 Adelaide Cabaret Festival and he gave insight into how hard life on stage really can be as well as the drive needed to stay in the spotlight. An eye-opener of an interview, but also endearing. I think by the end of this, you will love Reuben Kay as much as I do. Reuben Kay, welcome to the cafeteria. What an intro. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You're so welcome. Here we are on the hotel room floor in Adelaide where uh, we've poured ourselves a gorgeous glass of the Corriton Burge Riesling that we haven't had nearly enough of this weekend over opening weekend of the Adelaide Cabaret Festival. (laughs) It's such a... An amazingly well-stocked bar at the festival, which is really a dangerous thing. <laughs> it certainly is. cabaret artists are just music theatre performers without discipline. Oh, sure, so, without any whatsoever. Yeah, it's, it's a boundaryless festival. <laughs> <laughs> which is what they've wanted it to be, but we really take it that extra mile. I'm really, I'm really there to see what limits my liver can get to. Like this is why we're on the floor today, listeners. Is that your personal challenge? Just this to see how far you can push yourself? Correct. How far you're like the the Kramer in the car in Seinfeld with the empty tank of gas. Let's just see how much further we can go. I'm like that astronaut who decided to drive cross country in a nappy. <laughs> Because her, her partner broke up with her. She's like, I'm just going to stay awake, wear a nappy and keep going. Oh, my God. Well, there's a lovely ad for FEMS or for <laughs> Ensure or whatever they are out there. My God. Well, you would know more about diapers than me. I certainly would, having had birth to four kilogram child. Stop. Oh, yeah. He was right down there. That is... <laughs> What, what, how much is that if it was porterhouse? Like, that's how I relate to when they talk about weight. Babies equal steak to Reuben K. <laughs> Look, it's not the quote I wanted to go with for this, but it's there. Take a sip and let's get started, my friend. Let's go. One of my former colleagues who I worked with at Slide Lounge about 12 years ago was telling me about this young maniac called Reuben K who had set his sights on becoming the next biggest thing in cabaret. When did that start for you? When did you realise? What was the moment? Uh, I, th- I think in the womb, perhaps. <laughs> this is the first show. Prenatal. Yeah. The lighting was terrible, but the entrance was fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in a really super artsy household, but at the same time it was artsy but no nonsense. I have a Russian dad and a German mum. No nonsense indeed. No nonsense indeed. The dinner table was, you know. No silliness. Leningrad. (laughs) Um, But it was just a case of we work really hard. If you, my mum was a a writer and a filmmaker. My dad was a painter. And they were like, if you're an artist, you work, you know. Um, And I grew up watching sort of West Side Story, the Marx Brothers, Danny Kaye films. Shows and artists that had a lot of speed of delivery really a lot of speed of delivery, a lot of wordplay. And I was raised with predominantly 40-year-old artists as my only source of company. But So by the time I got to high school or even primary school, I was sort of going, what are we, mm. is someone going to pour a drink? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so you 
you've always then associated or felt like an old soul, I suppose. Is, yeah. is that true for you? I mean, yes. Old yeah. soul in a very, <clears throat> very young, tight body. That's exactly it. It's not just bulldog clips at the back. Um, <laughs> the minute I got into school, I realised pretty quickly, oh, for what I want to do in life, I don't need any of this bullshit. Mm-hmm. I don't need, I felt like school was actually a place where people who are, are placed into survival mode while they're still working out who they are and they're trying to function in a hierarchy to struggle for a place in, in society and they don't know who they are but yet they're told you've got to make a decision now. And I'm like I'm still trying to work out how to wank and shave and you want to tell me what I have to do for the rest of my life. Um, and I just felt like a lot of that pressure so I – I totally disassociated and I never did any work and I just worked at charming my school teachers and I got through with... Who I'm sure now are very, very big fans and audience members. Oh, my, my year 12 psychology teacher came to my solo show at Melbourne <gasps> Comedy Festival and I was looking at her face being like, I know this person throughout the whole show, you know, like out of the corner of your eye, you're doing your show and you're in the moment, they're going, what's happening? And then at the end I just went... I've just clocked that that is my year 12 psychology teacher, Edith <laughs> Edith Chasen, in the front row. And I can't help feeling like she must have seen this coming. <laughs> Did she spend a little extra time with you after class? Or, there, was a suge- there was a suggestion that I might, <laughs> I might benefit from outside counselling. I had a lot of counselling through school and a lot of, like, behaviour because I was very badly bullied. And because I had, I guess, a bit of a fuck you attitude, um... And if they were like, well, if you're going to beat me up, you're going to beat me up, but you're not going to win. And that only made them beat me up harder. Of course. You mean win emotionally, mentally, physically, you know, all of those things. Correct. Yeah, wow. Um, So how was school for you? Yeah, it was pretty pretty terrible, but I remember my mum saying to me, um, school is just something you have to survive until you get out into the real world and Mm. find your people. So high school, tick. Mm. Then what happened? Well, first off, in high school, that's where my nose was broken a couple of times, so that gave me this gorgeous schnoz, oh. which I think actually has helped a lot of my resonance and singing. You are the most striking person. You are so <laughs> tall and so lean, and we're going to talk about that in a little while, but also the structure of your face, especially when the light hits and the way that you, you do your face and everything, you are majestic to look at. It's taken a, a hot minute to get it right, and knowing, I think, centering exactly what the influences are and what my aim is, because it's 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 slightly borrowed from drag makeup, yep. but it's also borrowed from drag king makeup. Mm-hmm. It's accentuating and masculinizing the face as much as it is feminizing it, and it's not altering the structure. It's enhancing kind of what's there and highlighting. And with my drag or my creative kind of aesthetic, what I'm not doing is I'm not playing with gender. Mm. I'm playing very much about the balance between masculine and feminine in a male body. And that's a really, I think, just slightly more nuanced um, and specific personal to me. Yes. Uh, a debate to rage because the show has many strong moments or I have many strong moments and it's up to the audience to kind of go, oh, was that feminine or was that masculine or was it Reuben? And what you think is feminine and what you think is masculine is actually an ideal that you have placed on. And everyone's going to take something different as well. It's all individual. Mm-hmm. But where does the masculine come in? What 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 well, form of your face do you sort of highlight within the masculine? So I'm, I am I really do highlight the chin and the jaw. Yep. Uh, so all of that 
the really masculine frame of the eyebrows, the nose, the chin, the geometric side of it. For sure. I love when drag queens use their own hair and I love using mm. my own hair. Mm. I'm too sweaty for wigs, full stop. But Well, I don't want to I want to tell I want you, you to tell us how you manage that. You you did you admitted to me last night a little trick mm-hmm. of the yeah. trade that you use to stop the sweating. I'm a sweater as well. Mm-hmm. I have moved two wigs purely for for time and mm. and you know effort etc going into it, but um, mainly because I sweat like a pig when I'm on stage with the lights and if yeah. they're not LED lights, forget about it. I'm in a swamp with it, you know, yeah. up to, in the third song, it's, you know, everything's drenched. It's, so yeah, it's the Beyonce, it's the Beyonce mandate of photos only in the first three songs. Yes. So what is your tip to stop the sweat on your so head? So it's not for everyone. I know this, but I actually get Botox in the crown of my scalp mm. and it significantly reduces the amount of sweat and almost decimates the sweat that I would have from the crown of my head and my forehead that runs down. Mm. So who were your influences? You spoke about the way that you paint your face. Who, yeah. who were those influences? Well, I mean, I think the beginner influence, the platform influence for everyone on a sort of a primary level are people like Tim Curry and mm. Bowie. But then moving on from that, you go to Pat Benatar, Princess Stephanie, Stephanie of Monaco. Oh, God. I am a lover of fashion. Wasn't she so strong? See, she was such a mix of, of mask and femme as well, uh-huh. the broad shoulders and the heavy eyebrows. Grace Jones. Um, all um, You go to some people like Marlena Dietrich or Amanda Lear, Amanda Lepore, those big queer icons. Mm. So it's that thing of going, oh, if you have one or two influences, people will clock what you're doing immediately. But if you have 110, then they all come together to create something very individual and very you. They amalgamate into Ruben K. Yeah, and I think there's that thing of going, there are so many camp uh, performers out there who do glitz and glam, right? But for me, the centre of it comes from these really quite um, – adult, dark or melancholic figures so that you can do the glitz and glam and then when it's all stripped back, there's something. Much deeper. Yeah, there's something Much there. darker. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do get a uh, clockwork orange sense from you as well. Yeah. I'm not sure if that was yep. an Absolutely. intent, but it's very much there. And and I, I know in your performances, you you know, your entrances are always so spectacular and backlit and always through a curtain if, if we can find one and we can get one there. But then you bring us right down to those pinnacle moments where it's merely a spotlight in you and you're – you're giving it, you're really going into quite an obscure monologue, something that everybody can relate to, whether or not they want to or they want to admit to it. But I find I find that that, that uh, transition is always so brilliantly done. You get the best tension through contrast. And if you go from 110 miles a minute to zero, mm. suddenly everyone's paying attention. I'm a massive Bette Midler fan mm. and I used to watch on repeat and still do uh, the Cleveland 1976 tour. Oh, of course, Alive at Last. Alive at Last. Oh. Um, and specifically that Fried Eggs monologue oh. because that Fried Eggs monologue is taking an audience from this rowdy, screaming, comedy music gig to this place of absolute vulnerability and she does it through so many gorgeous heartfelt moments and the band comes with her and and then she starts singing hello in there mm-hmm. and the audience the audience has held its breath for so long and she starts singing and it and they breathe out at the same time and you hear the release to engineer moments like that through what we do 
is one of the greatest achievements. And that's what I want to give the audience is moment after moment. And that's what um, that's what Bette did so well too, her, the, the way that she chose her catalogue of songs. Uh, I understand that she used to go and spend hours and hours in the old record stores in New York City going through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of LPs and finding these magical moments. I mean, she she covered everyone from Neil Young to John Prine who wrote Hello In There. It's one of my favourite songs to sing in, in my show. We had an apartment in the city. And... Um, you have a very, very great catalogue too. What What's your process of choosing the material that you use? Oh, my God. It's so haphazard. I'm such a magpie and I'm always on in terms of where my ear is at. Mm. I choose songs that I'll sing all out as, as, as they are, and that's um, songs like um, Portrait of a Man in the New Solo Show or... Um, uh, without you, Harry Nielsen song. I heard that the other night in the Spiegel tent, and it was oh, divine. Heaven, not in the key that Mariah does. More, more the Harry Nielsen key. <laughs> um, but it's not the song as much as it is what you do with the song. Exactly, because you're not doing it in the original key. I couldn't do it. No one cares if you sing high. They just care if you sing well. It's about how I how I can bend the song to me, or does the song is the song strong enough? to serve what I need. And in the case of something like Portrait of a Man by Screaming Jay Hawkins, it couldn't have been more perfect. Mm. And in the case of Without You, or we've got a ver- – you'll see t- on Friday Shannon's version um, arrangement of Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow that oh. we do, which is beautiful. Very rare for me to sing a song all the way through with the no shrills. jokes. Yeah, yeah, yes, it is very rare. Uh, a, a song of yours can be 25 minutes with maybe two <laughs> lines and a, and a monologue in between, but we find it's rapturous. It's you draw us right in and we are there for the ride the entire time. I think it, I came to singing um, very young, wanted to sing, wanted to sing, but was legitimately terrible at it to the point where sort of my primary school choir teacher told me that I should never sing, that my voice was totally out of tune Mm. and I should never sing. And I went home and I was heartbroken, but I kept on singing around the house and my mum was like, oh, he's just not going to stop. He needs a teacher because he is not great. And about four teachers turned me down saying hopeless case tone deaf. No. Wow. I don't know if you know her in Melbourne, Kate Sadler. No, I don't know Kate. Kate Sadler is, uh, I don't use this phrase very often, but an angel sent from heaven and mm. I don't even believe in those two things. <laughs> she was a firm believer in that anyone can sing. It's a muscle. It's a psychological link between an, the oral and the muscular. And so she said she had a choir, so she enrolled me in the choir. She sat me in the basses next to the piano, said, don't sing, you just listen. And then I would work on the repertoire with her in the class, in her private room, until she could get me to learn how to hear when I was in tune, hear what was what in tune sounded like, and then learn how to start manipulating my voice to get to that point. Wow. So how long did that process go on for? How long did you have those lessons with Kate? I was with, I reckon I was with Kate for about two years before I could properly sing in tune, and I was with her for four. Wow, that's extraordinary. And that goes to just show that... Um, there's so much conversation about artists and their validity and how essential they are compared to sports people 
We are athletes. Mm. Yeah. We are exactly the same. We use muscles, we train, we work our asses off. Mm. And that's point in case right there. That's such an interesting story. And yeah. so after those two years of training with Kate, where did you go to from there? I got into the VCA. Wow. The Victorian College of the Arts. It was at that time and still is now incredibly prestigious. That's right. Um, so uh, I did the music theatre course, uh, graduated in the music theatre course, got an agent, got a couple of adverts, would keep on auditioning but always get into the last two but not quite making it. Oh, Dals, welcome to my world. Yeah, right. Oh. Saying, what a lovely thing to be told. You're talented but not right. Exactly. No, you don't. You Again, you don't fit the you're not the right piece of the puzzle. Yeah. You don't fit the box. They don't explain that to you. They expect you to know it and you expect to be, you're in a professional circumstance, you're a big boy, learn it and deal with it and work it out. And you don't it, learn it until you're doing it, until you're there, until you're living it and experiencing it. Just yeah. a little bit of warning, guys, would have been nice. Just a little, a little you know, half an hour masterclass on what happens. On rejection. In a, yes. I would love to do, <laughs> I'd love to do a, a half hour masterclass on rejection. I think all the kids do it. I um, should have it. I went to the VCA and spoke as a, um, a graduate. And I think I might have painted a bit of a dark picture because I did say the majority of you will not work in music theatre and that's fantastic. And some of you will and that is also fantastic. But just know that music theatre expects you to cope with a lot of rejection and um, and try to soldier through without placing any of that directly on you while still taking responsibility for why you didn't get a gig. And isn't it a beautiful moment where you do realise that it's not you, it is the machine mm -hmm. and you can work as hard as you're going to work and everybody in Australia does, I believe that. I believe yep, that I believe we that. are the hardest working artists out there. But what a beautiful moment where you do realise it's not me, I just don't fit that, that's not a reflection on me as an artist. And further to that, you can go off and you can still forge your own path, which is well, exactly what we have done. Well, what what happened was I was in um, a Jersey Boys, I think, audition mm -hmm. and one I heard one of the auditions. <laughs> I don't audition. see you in that show at all darling. Well, no I was the manager <laughs> the gay manager who oh, believes in. I absolutely can see, see you, you in that role <laughs> and I still didn't get it. Oh god. But I remember so vividly one of the people in that in that um a panel room uh saying as I left the room when he thought I was out of earshot I mean, he's doing all this cabaret stuff, so why is he doing this? Wow, dude. So not your decision and so none of your business. And what a lack of imagination to think that you can't do both. Exactly. That someone can't do both. Now, Alan Cumming, hello. All of the great, oh. all the greats. So anyway, I just went, oh, I've got, to, I've got to leave Australia at that time. I didn't feel like I was... Um, getting what I wanted from this industry and I wasn't giving what this industry wanted here so I had to broaden my horizons. So I booked a one-way ticket to London on a sale on Etihad and um, I, spent, I booked it a year in advance and I quit the industry and I worked seven days a week in bars um, to save up money. Wow. Uh, and got very, very drunk for a lot of that year. <laughs> uh, By the booze. end of his shift, uh, my friends listening, uh, yeah. they would take Ruben's time check, uh, uh, time, <laughs> time, sheet. time sheet, thank you very much, and uh, they'd look at it and they'd say, okay, well, you've done seven hours at this much and uh, plus your tab, you owe us $300. Yeah, correct. 
Correct. I used to, my uniform for most of it was gumboots, short shorts, vest, and a flannel. Oh, my God. With a pint of bourbon and Coke at the Prince of Wales. Oh, bourbon. Um, That's my dream, Yeah, I know. I remember from last night. (laughs) She Uh, says she rolls her eyes. I know. Just myself as well. Um, And then I do that. I do bar called Barry's on a Thursday. Friday to Monday, I'd work at the Prince of Wales. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, I'd work at the Supper Club in Melbourne, Mm. CBD. Uh, And my goodness me, they fired me from there because they caught me just sculling Armagnac. (laughs) Just like a 1985 (laughs) Armagnac that's like $60 a shot. Well, something's got to get you through this shift, (laughs) Dars. However. However, you saved the money. You got on the plane and you landed in London. And I... I spent it all in three weeks. Tell me about that. I heard a little, a little insight into this I'm, story last night. I'm, I'm very much um, uh, see it, want it, got to have it. And I I'm, get that a hundred percent. I'm a, I'm a reactive like what's in front of me, and what was in front of me was the whole city of London and a mm. lot of money, and I, I lost all sense of how to spend. I didn't really get a job. I just thought, just experience it. And three weeks goes by so quick. Um, I started to stay on my sister's couch. She said, for two weeks until you get yourself sorted. That blasted out to a month. And she was like, you need to leave. Um, get out, get out Ruby. Fair, 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 fair. Uh, What's your sister's name? Kiara. Kiara, well done, Kiara. <laughs> you sent him on his way. Respect. Uh, and it was in Aldgate. She lived in Aldgate. And I was working as a butler at the members club in Pall Mall. So if you don't know, Pall Mall has this, is this long street with a lot of members clubs and they're these, like the reform club is where they film James Bond uh-huh. and all that stuff. It's sort of where aristocratic Brits go in, they pay a membership fee and they have a club that they spend their days at. Meet me at my club. Uh, and the members, the travellers club where I was working as a butler, the um, what you call the criteria for joining it was that you had to have visited 50 countries in a year. Oh, sure. Okay. So what what's the cost of a membership to one of these clubs? Astronomical. Astronomical. And I, it, was, it was truly an exercise in viewing classism in the UK. Absolutely. And realising that whereas in Australia the racism at the, is at the forefront and the classism is a step behind – in Britain, it is reversed. The classism is forefront and their racism is kind of... A, a step back. A step back. Mm. Um, still present, but just the classism takes it first. It was a lot of where are you from, a lot of what where did you go did to you school. Yes. yes, what school did you go to? Uh, a lot of very old gin-blossomed men staggering up to me at 11 a.m. going, you red wine in here kind of thing and wanting sherry and so old school and me in the grey morning suit with the slicked back hair um, clean shaven and well told not to speak in an Australian accent. Oh my goodness! So yes, yeah, suddenly it was all yes. Yeah, of course, sir. Good morning, yes, sir. Good morning. Anything you want, sir. Anything you want, sir. More, <laughs> more, <laughs> boy for sale. <laughs> Only seven guineas. Uh, so yeah, I, I worked there for six pound fifty an hour, mm. and I needed a place to stay. And one of the other butlers who. Um, Shall not rename. Shall not be na- na- name. Name redacted. <laughs> Shall not rename nameless. Said, tell, come over here. And he took me to his place in Stepney Way, which was an old pub that he was um, that he was squatting in and cooking meth in one of the other rooms. 
uh, and dealing Walter drugs. Walter White's in town. <laughs> Here he, he is. Was, he was Sir Walter White Esquire. <laughs> and he said, we don't, have a room, we don't have a room, but we've got this bus in the car park of this pub, like on the street of this car park. Uh, and he said, this is free, 40 pounds a week. I'll take it. And I said, I'll, I'll have it. Mm. And I don't know if anyone remembers in London 10 years ago how severe that winter, the two winters there were, but it was snowed in. Wow. Because I was earning £6.50 a week in London and singing at this tiny place called Cellador, which is this, um, if you know where The Lion King is playing in London, the Lyceum Theatre on um, just where near Melbourne House, near where Fleet Street is, right near Embankment. Um, there's a door down, little stairwell down, and it's the it's an old public toilet that was meant to be frequented by Oscar Wilde and all of them, and it's been transformed into this tiny cocktail bar <sighs> that has um, it's tiny. It's about the size of this room. Like you can fit maybe thirty people in it at a at a squeeze, and they have a little piano and a tiny raised stage that's about the size of these two tables. <laughs> uh, They're and, tiny, let me tell you. And they have uh, open mic nights where you just the pianist is there and it's all people singing old musical theatre or people, um, a drag act will come on or something, like, or a comedy act. Um, and I got up there every, I think, Friday or Thursday was the open mic night and I'd get up and sing, try out stuff, and that's where I met my friends. In London from there. That's where you met your people. That's where I found my people. Wow, mm. that's so beautiful. And they're my friend, they're my people to this day. I oh, mean I Andrew love Pepper, that. who's an amazing cabaret artist now in London. Beck Hines, who who they introduced me to, who um, is a musical theatre so she's in uh, Oklahoma at the Young Vic, about to transfer. David Menken, who I met there, who's just the new Luke Skywalker in the um, in the Lego Star Wars. So, you know, massive overachievers. Massive overachievers who I met in this tiny, tiny club. And what did, what did, how did your heart feel when you met those people? I was so, it's so funny, isn't it? You think of the grandeur and the, these great aims that we all have as artists to play stadiums and things like that. And I so remember thinking when I was in London in that 30-person like we use the word charming now mm. because there's not a short word for none of these pillows have been washed. <laughs> um, and this charming tiny bar with this shitty mic, um, drunk patrons and my three mates and me coming up with a medley of little red Corvette and M&M's Lose Yourself and feeling like a superstar and oh. feeling like I was with family. Yeah, it was beautiful. That is so beautiful. Um, you mentioned you were a big fan of Good Newsweek mm-hmm. when you were growing up. And in 2020, we were so fortunate enough to be able to have you at Friday Night Live in the Reservoir Room with oh us under God. the direction of Ted Robinson, the creator and producer and founder of The Big Gig and Good News Week. And my God, so many of those iconic television shows in the 80s, 70s, 80s and 90s. It was absolutely a dream. A dream and a high-pressure dream as well because also it was one of the first gigs back after vocal surgery. So I was doing numbers that I didn't know I if I had the notes. Oh, tell me. Them. Okay, we're taking a step back from this moment, the vocal surgery. Yeah. <laughs> so my voice was starting to just get a bit weathered and I was always very much one of those people who's like, voices that should have character. 
who cares? Um, and I'll push through it. Yeah, I'll push through mm. it. Or because it's cabaret, I can choose other options and work around stuff. Or sometimes the hangover, oh, if there's a hangover, I know I can sing these notes better, but I can't sing these parts better. And add to the fact that you're not touring with a sound manager no. or a sound technician. You're not working with your regular mo- well, microphone. Well, a lot of London, you're working it with tracks. Right. And there's only so much support you can get between a track and you. And um, my voice was starting to just give me a bit of jip. So I went to... Um, a vocal person, and I went, oh, yeah, you've got a bit of... Um, was this in London? In London. Mm. You've got a bit of keratosis, which is like a stiffening at the very edge, like a little, it looks like little whites. It's exactly it? what you like. I've heard the rumours. That's correct. And they, I said, really, are you sure it won't just like flake off in a couple of days? And they were like, no, 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 no. Normally we get that with people who are smokers. Do you smoke? I'm like, no. And, um, and then I had a, a slight soft cyst, which was just... Oh. Mm, and they said, look, it's not really affecting your sound. Just when you're run down, it'll give you a bit of jip. So just monitor it, right? And then I was very good and it all went away. I was very, I, I just shaped up, shipped up and was very good. Uh, but because I still knew the people there, I still kept a relationship. And whenever I was in London again, so I was still traveling, I'd pop over and go, what do you think? Because yep. once the demon's in you, in your head. Once the, that seed is planted. The demon's in your head that you're causing vocal damage. Yeah. And so that was in my head and we kept on working and working and working and then we did the solo show, which was sort of like the biggest sing I'd ever had to really do. What um, solo show? The first one. The first one, which was Your the one I – my first solo show. that I solo production. Mm. Got you. And I managed to get through it fine. I was like, oh, I'm doing well. And then we were in London before – this is in 2019. At the November of 2019, I was in my vocal people and they were – Doing a scope, and then, yeah, yeah, your your cords are fine, but what's this thing in your sinus? That's it's we can see as we pull out and as we go in, there's this occlusion or something. We're going to send you in for an MRI, and I was oh like, my God. okay, that's not what I want to hear. I've got a pretty big family history of uh, of the big C, you know, uh, which at that time meant cancer. Yeah, it, yes. I'm in the faux pas of uh, texting my best friend last week saying, Tenacious C has gotten the big C. (laughs) She was on the tram and she just texted back, ah, fuck. And I was like, when she realised I meant COVID instead of cancer, I was like, well, what sort of response was that? (laughs) If I had been telling you, thanks very much. Great. Yes, but yes, you had a family history. Family, so I thought I was panicking. I went in and they showed me the... um, uh, they showed me the results of the MRI and, you know, when you look at your MRIs, the black is the blank space and the grey matter is the fluid and one sinus was perfectly clear and one entire sinus cavity was filled. Oh, wow. So on my right side, I, where you should be able to resonate and where you have clear breathing, it was just an assist and said, this is a big old cyst and it's probably been there for a long time. How long have you not been able to breathe through your nose? And I was like... As long as I can't, long as I can remember, mm. I've been a mouth breather. Because whenever I breathe, it's a horrendous no- noise, and I can't. And they said, "Look, your nose has been broken a couple of times. I think this has grown around that, right? Um, and hence, it's been there since before you started singing." And how did the nose break? Oh, being bashed at school, being bashed at school for sure. Although there was one time when I was very young, that oh, my brother so threw sorry. me off a before my brother threw me off a flying fox. Ah. Sure. My face broke the fall. Maybe that as well. But it's there were like several times. There's a couple of breaks there. Um, and so I they went in to get it 
and they put me under to get it. And as they were putting me under to go for my sinus, I turned to the administering anesthetician in front of everyone and said, well, you know, if you go in anally, it'll probably be easier for everyone because it's a wider egress. <laughs> which I thought... Which At the count of eight when he's got the <laughs> anaesthetic going, he still punches them out. Oh, but my. I thought it was a great gag. <laughs> Nobody laughed. Of course not. They're about to do a deep pro. Yeah, and they... In an orifice. And my last memory of going under was bombing the room. <laughs> And then I woke up and I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm pretty, like, clogged up from sinus surgery. Whatever, go home. Three days later, my throat starts burning and to the point where I can't swallow. And I'm not a, a pain wimp. No. And then I go to a doctor and I go, I can't swallow. I'm in – something's wrong. And they said, no, after surgery you always have a sore throat because of the breathing tube. And I said, well, they didn't use the standardised breathing tube that goes through your larynx because that touches your vocal cords, they use what they call an LMA, which is sort of like a little mask that sits on top of your larynx and pushes air through so that it never touches your vocal cords. So that it doesn't. Which is the biggest concern for any vocalist any going under any sort of uh, operation. Hmm. Um, like and then three days later, I was not able to swallow and I was panicking. I'd been to another doctor who said, no, you're just... This is just post-procedure stuff. Correct. And I'm like, this isn't. I know it's wrong. Then luckily I had my phone number of my speech pathologist who was part of my team at the guys St. Thomas and I messaged them and they said, come in and look. And they looked down my throat and they were shocked because the entirety of my larynx had ulcerated. It was one oh big ulcer. God. And they said the LMA must have uh, lacerated the top of your larynx where it sat, just must have rubbed. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and they go, okay, 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 we're going to give you a lot of aspirin gargles. Aspirin gargles, aspirin sprays, aspirin pills. Because I know that... Aspro-clear saves lives. <laughs> right. And, uh, and medical-grade aspirin sprays. Yeah. And I said, I have... Um, what work do you have coming up? Mm -hmm. And I said, look, at the moment, none except for this TV spot for the BBC... Um, Panel show. Yep. Right, which is uh, a BBC, you're fired. You can find it on YouTube. But it was my, you can. It's fabulous. It was Go my, and check it out. It was my UK panel show TV debut oh, as a comedian. Oh, God, right? so you've got to be there. You've got to you've got do to it. And they'd already – they were going to launch the, the Channel 4 thing with me and the kids at the same time. Oh. So it was all going to be this coordinated launch, so I had to – You had to be there. Had to be there. Yeah. And so they said, great, well, just don't sing when you're on all this aspirin. Because aspirin thins your blood. So with the panel, were you just on it as a just guest? On, as, a, as a comedian. So, as okay, a comedian. great. So you weren't singing? I wasn't singing. And they said, just make sure you're easy on your voice, blah, blah, blah. And then I did the, the panel show. And um, and a day later, I was like, oh, why is my voice scratchy? Something doesn't feel correct. And um, I, I made an appointment. So that's another couple of days later and just normal. And then I went in and they looked at my cords, which had been fine this whole time, and they looked and they just went, oh, yeah, you've hemorrhaged pretty heavily in one of your vocal cords. Um, we were worried this would happen with the aspirin. They, By the way, I, had, I Did waited. Did they premise the taking of the aspirin with a possible hemorrhage? They never said it. it they said it was a possibility after the fact. 
they kind of said just don't sing and go easy on your voice. I think because they assumed that I should know, which is so true. As a singer, you should know that anything with a blood thinner in it, like an aspirin, has the propensity to thin your blood and make your cords fuller with more full with blood than they can. And when they're operating at such a high level, they're more likely to hemorrhage. And they said, and you have been speaking on this for how many days? And I was like, five to six. They went, yeah, you're going to get a polyp on this. You need to stop speaking immediately. And I had, I was meant to get on a plane to Portland for a Christmas show for the month of November and December. And then from there, go to Adelaide Fringe to open my new show with Scott Maidman and my face was everywhere in Adelaide, blah, blah, blah. So phone calls and happen. And this is? 2020. This is nine, end, of 2009, end of 2019. So this is now in December 2019. I, don't, I come in every week and they say, stop, no, not allowed to talk. Every week go in and check, no, still not allowed to talk. So 2019 and then you're in this position in as this an position, artist. In this position as an artist. I'm, and have all of these contracts in the USA yeah, it in was like Australia. USA debut, Australia. Also, the spot and the kids vir- the kids clip go mental, really popular. Go su- well, kids go super viral. Were so beautiful, those children. Were so just I'm divine. now receiving offers in the UK, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and me trying everything I can to say I'm not damaged. I'm just waiting to hear, but what that means is. You're not, you're a liability. And all those offers just oh. deliquesced and melted away. And then what happens in 2020 away. on top of that? Well, wait for it. It mm. gets better. It gets oh, better. I'm sure it does. So I don't speak for two months. Every week I'm going in and I'm growing progressively more psychotic and crazy and stressed. I can't really communicate with people aside from my phone or mouthing. So I can't be social. I can't go out. Um, I start getting like weird paranoia about um, cold air on my voice. Right. By January the 8th, I'm really ramping up on how upset I am and how, how in my head I am. And I go there and they're like, it's still not healing. And I I'd kind of lose it in this operating room and just start crying, be like, "What's why aren't I healing? What's wrong with me? And they say, look, we think you – should have surgery on this. We have the surgeon available now and we have the equipment available now. But you've otherwise it's a waiting list. Do you want to do it now? And I was like, do it now. Do it absolutely now. And they said, you've eaten today, so we can't give you a general. Are you okay to be awake while we do it? And they said, we've done it before and it's normally about five to ten minutes. And I said, do it. Do it now. I will do what I, I will manage. And I wasn't prepared for how quickly it went from saying that to suddenly having a surgeon inside me because it was literally in that chair, in that room, the laser was brought in, the surgeon came in, introduced himself to me, um, sprayed me and was in me and they had these two screens facing me of the operation and I was with the thing down my nose and I was going, turn them around, turn them around, I don't want to say turn them around. And they turned the screens around so I couldn't see them. And then I had told my speech pathologist um, to hold my hand because I had no humanity in the room. I needed to touch something because it was terrifying. And then, um, and then it was a case of, okay, let's have a look around. Yep, yep, I see. Make a noise. E zap. E zap. And then you could taste 
the smell of my vocal cords burning, this taste of like ham, like bacon. Oh, Reuben. Um, and I was kind of there with these tears like streaming, just going, just get through this, get through this and you'll be fine, just get through this and you will be fine. And then um, the anaesthetic started to wear off because they were there for so long. 45 minutes, I was in that chair and they pulled out, re-sprayed me, went back in. So a whole 45 minutes goes by and then they, they get, they kind of go, okay, uh, you're done. And I start to relax and then they pull all the instruments out of me and I just go down. I black out. I my eyes roll back. The whole world just collapses. And um, I'm not in a bed. I'm not in a recovery room where they have anything to give me. I'm in a, an office essentially. And they can't stabilize my pulse. And I start hacking up white sputum just like white foam starts coming out of me, which is this stress-based stress response indigestion and reflux. So these new cords I'm now hacking up acidic foam on and starting to cry and my surgeon is yelling at me going, don't cry at me. And, and I'm kind of like, I can't, I've got nurses holding me in place on this chair that I'm rolling around on and I'm, I'm, I don't know what's happening. They th- they don't they can't stabilize my pulse. They think I'm about to have a, a heart attack or something. And um, slowly they it just takes time, and I just recover. We kind of get back to normal, and they're like, "You can't cough, you can't cry, you can't talk, you can't sneeze, you can't do anything for the next eight days while you're waiting for this thing to heal." And of course, what happens is um, I I've got what happened was I went into shock. I went into this traumatic shock from this sustained tension of not being able to speak to this cumulative um, event of the surgery that was too stressful psychologically for any singer to go under conscious. You know, there was no distance from it. It was so immediate to me. And um, and I, I've had reflux to this day. Never had it before. Right. It's an absolute stress thing that's now occurred in my body that I have to find some way to unwire, I guess, or deal with. But mm-hmm. um, uh, another month of not talking after that, I had PTSD from it. I would have recurring dreams where I would try to pull like something from the back of my throat and it would become barbed wire and I would just be pulling lengths of barbed wire out of my throat. Or I used to have these tiny, if I started to doze off on the tram, I'd see my mouth opening and it'd be like the elevator in The Shining. Right. Just blood yes, coming of out course. of it. Yes, uh, And so I w- started going to therapy because of it. Um, I'm so glad that you did. Oh, yeah. You, you absolutely had to do that. And I got a couple great jokes out of my therapist. <laughs> and my first words spoken were on February 11th from November 29th when I stopped speaking to February 2019 to February 11th, 2020. February 11, 2020. And that's when I said the first words out of my mouth were, I want to go to Australia. Um, I want to go and see Deb Fyland. The best in the business in Melbourne. The best in the business in the Melbourne. The best in the business. Who I've worked with before, so I had a relationship. And I said, I just, um, it's not that I don't think the care I've been given here is fine. I just need something familiar. I, I just needed something else. So I jumped on the plane um, and landed here. Oh, I also <laughs> booked shows at the Comedy Fest because you do. Of course she did. Because you do what, what you do know. what do we do? Exactly. You go to what you know. And I thought, I'm going to write a new show out of this. and This is going to be great. So I was writing this new show and I, I landed on March 13th, with, uh, 12th with the Comedy Festival um, looming to come in in April. And March 13th, I think it was, Australia shut down. 
and I was now in my boyfriend's flat, which we'd done long distance for two and a half years, I was in this crazy mental headspace. Um, and Debbie. Deb Fyland. Deb Fyland listened to me and went, you're probably going to need another surgery. And then they took a scope and they said, okay, now you have to leave. I can't tell you the results of the scope. You've got to go because we have to look at the results, but also you can't be in this office because of COVID was of course. at the peak, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, okay, great. So I was kind of on tender hooks. And then, of course, the relationship broke because I think he's in, a, in his own words, you're just more fun when you're performing. Wow. Which sounds like a really – he – I just like to tell that person that he's not. He's just <laughs> as much fun when he's in a room – Look, some people want to be with performers for a variety of reasons. They do. A variety of reasons. And, and I then can't... they discover that, oops, I don't get them and mm. I don't understand what they do and then that moves yeah. into resentment and then it Those doesn't things. work for them and that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. So it's just that's what it is. Uh, but it was a wonderful moment to kind of go, okay, you might not, you don't know what your voice is like, you don't know what your career is like, you don't know what your industry is like and now you're heartbroken. Uh, and I was in this house in Collingwood that's owned by Brett Haylock, who's a producer who we The Brunswick with. Picture House, which Brunswick we Picture love house. and adore. Shout out. Oh, my God. Go down there. Go and up there. Go up there. I she know. She doesn't know which direction <laughs> she's heading in. And uh, But that beautiful, their beautiful tiny little place is heated only by a wood fire, a wood burner. And so it's winter. It was coming into winter by that stage. You go through January, March, April, suddenly get quite chilly. And so the only thing I had for kindling in their house was thousands of flies of my face <laughs> from from last year's shows. Oh, my God. If that isn't the epitome of showbiz, I don't know what is. Well, Reuben Kay, you wanted to come home and we are so glad that you did. Oh. We love you. We celebrate you. You have found your people. Yeah. Two quick questions. Hit me. What's the big dream? Yep. Should big big dream. Um, half the year touring shows, half the year my own TV show, Shiny Floor, filth, some some filthy queer game show. I have a I have a feeling we can figure that out. And second question to finish off, what can't you live without? Oh my god, what can't I live without? I can't live without a lot of things. I'm a maximalist. <laughs> I don't know, like um, um, fragile men. We're going to end it there <laughs> because we were supposed to do this podcast at 2pm and she rocked up at 3 because we don't I, need to go there. I'll let your imaginations run wild. Who was otherwise engaged. Reuben Kay, thank you so much for spending the time and being so generous with this conversation this afternoon. Thank really, you. you are an absolute gem. You are an icon and... Uh, I'd just like to leave you on this quote. Reuben Kay already knows he's an icon. It's time for you to find out too. Thank you, darling. Thank you so much. And there you have it, folks. That's it for this week's episode of The Cafeteria. If you enjoyed it, make sure to hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen. Go ahead and give it five stars while you're there. And why don't you share it with your mates? Help me get the word out. Thanks to our guest today, Ruben Kay. If you'd like more information on Ruben or just to get in touch with him, believe me, he'd love that too, head to rubenk.com. I'll be back soon with more colourful characters, hilarity and entertainment. See you next week.